Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Dohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawah, U.S. seeks sanctions against South Sudan, rebel leader Riek Macha, Experts call for sustainable financing of African Union peace operation and a UN Climate Change Summit ends with a plea for urgent action. In economics news, South Africa continue efforts to stave off downgrade to junk status. And in sports news, South African Springboks lose to Italy for the first time. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Mali's local elections have been marred by boycotts and kidnapping. Polls were cancelled in at least seven districts for security reasons in elections widely criticised by opposition parties. In the southern capital, Bamako ballot boxes were burnt by armed men in Timbuktu and opposition candidate was allegedly also kidnapped. The Opposition Union for the Republic and Democracy Party denounced what it called fraud in the vote preparations that it said would benefit President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita's government. Gambian authorities have refused the European Union access to observe the upcoming elections. The EU was ready to deploy a team to provide what he described as technical assessment of the December 1st vote. And EU source says Gambia's election commission last week signaled a willingness to allow the EU to participate. Eight opposition parties have rallied behind one candidate businessman Adama Baro in a bid to end President Yaya Jema's 22-year rule which activists and diplomats say have been marred by human rights abuses and repression. Gemma and opposition leaders have begun two weeks of final campaigning. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has announced he will retire. The 91-year-old leader did not put a timeline on when he would leave office, but insisted he would retire properly. Mugabe has been in office since Britain granted its former colony official independence in 1980. Earlier this year, Mugabe suggested he would be president for life. His NPF party has previously said Mugabe would be its candidate in the 2018 election. The intense air assault that has killed and injured scores of Syrian civilians over the last several days has been condemned by the United Nations Chief Ban Ki-moon. Ban denounced the indiscriminate shelling that has been reported in Aleppo, including strikes on schools said to have killed a number of children. The airstrikes have also left eastern Aleppo without functioning hospitals. Jocelyn Zambira reports. Syrian civilians on all sides of the divide are at the receiving end of the escalating violence. Mortars have been fired at residential neighborhoods of Damascus and several suburbs of the city have been subjected to counter-shelling. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has called for the immediate end to any such attacks and called for those responsible to be brought to justice. 
He reminded all parties to the conflict that targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure is a war crime. Mr. Ban also called for all parties to ensure freedom of movement of civilians and immediate unhindered access to humanitarian assistance. And finally, the death toll following the derailment of a train in India's northern Uttar Pradesh state has risen to 120, with more than 150 people injured. The 14 carriages of the Indo Patna Express derailed near the city of Kanpur. The army has been deployed to assist with rescue operations. Several more bodies are still believed to be trapped under the wreckage. The cause of the crash is not yet known. That's the news airlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Monday, November the 21st, the 326th day of 2016, with 40 days left in the year. Predictable and sustainable financing is needed to sustain African Union-led peace operations over the long term, the UN Security Council has heard. That's the message delivered by Ambassador Tete Antonio, permanent observer of the African Union or AU. The UN and AU often team up to deploy boots on the ground in hot spots like Darfur, Somalia, Mali, the Central African Republic and Burundi. Jocelyn Sambira reports. In a little over a decade, strong cooperation between the AU and the UN on planning and support peace operations has become the norm, according to the Assistant Secretary General for Peacekeeping Operations. Mr. El Hasimwani listed the countries where the two organizations have worked together to respond to crises from Mali to the Central African Republic, Darfur, and Somalia. African has been important for peacekeeping, and peacekeeping has been important for Africa, he noted. Nine out of 16 of our peacekeeping missions are deployed in Africa. These missions alone account for 83% of all uniformed personnel and 86% of the financial resources approved for UN peacekeeping missions. As of July 2016, African states represented 20 of the top 30 contributors of uniformed personnel in United Nations peacekeeping operations and almost 50% of all uniformed peacekeepers come from African Union member states. Meanwhile, the AU's proven ability to act as a first responder is a critical element of the evolving peace and security architecture. Ambassador Tete Antonio, the permanent observer of the AU to the UN, said since the creation of the AU in 2002, the organization has demonstrated a clear comparative advantage in missions where offensive operations are needed and the UN is unable to deploy forces in a timely manner. But the current financial arrangements for AU-led peace operations are neither reliable nor sustainable, he explained. However, while the AU has demanded experience and political will to deploy rapidly in order to deliver invest cases, it is unable to sustain such missions over the medium too long term because it lacks sufficient means. For this reason, in 2015, the African Union heads of states and government 
made a commitment at the 24th ordinary session of the assembly to finance 25% of the cost of the AU-led peace support operations from AU member states assessed contributions. In order to fulfill the commitment to finance 25% of the cost of AU-led peace support operations, a peace fund was set up back in July. Donald Kaberuka is the high representative of the African Union Peace Fund. The fund will focus on four main priorities. First, preventive diplomacy. Experience has shown that this is by far the most cost-effective way of maintaining peace, which in the case of the AU would be around $35 million per year, a modest but a very effective level of financing. Second, institutional capacity to address gaps in the implementation of the fund, estimated at $30 million per year. And third, peace support operations when that becomes necessary and appropriate and is approved by competent AOGAs. And fourth, a crisis reserve facility to enable the AU to respond to rapid onset crisis in a timely manner. The AU Peace Fund is expected to get $65 million per year from each of the continent's five regions through an importation levy of 0.2% on eligible imports. The provision will increase to $80 million per region by 2020. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. The United States has proposed the names of three South Sudanese officials for sanctions by the United Nations Security Council, most notably the ousted opposition leader and former first Vice President Riek Machar. The move comes a day after the U.S. introduced a draft resolution calling for an arms embargo amidst warnings from the U.N. that violence was escalating across the country with the potential for genocide. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. An annex sent to council members includes proposals to blacklist opposition leader Riek Machar, South Sudan's army chief Paul Malong, and the country's information minister Michael Makwey. A sanctions regime was established in 2015 and renewed in May this year for a period of one year and allows for such designations. The United States introduced a draft resolution Thursday as concerns that ethnic divisions in the country could spiral out of control as the peace deal signed in August 2015 teeters on the brink. Listen to Ambassador Samantha Power. As we've learned elsewhere, an arms embargo is effective if there's a broad and robust commitment to its enforcement. Imposing new targeted sanctions designations will isolate the individuals who have consistently been responsible for the acts that have brought South Sudan to this moment and which have caused so much suffering. These sanctions will limit the ability of such individuals to travel freely, as they are doing now uh, across the region, or to move assets that could be used to fund further violence. The draft annex accuses Mashar of entering into alliances with equatorial rebel groups to overthrow the South Sudanese government. The army chief is accused of efforts to kill Mashar. While the information minister stands accused of being involved in the planning of an April 2014 attack on a UN compound in Jonglei State, which killed three UN guards and 140 civilians. Russia, for its part, says it does not support an arms embargo or any new sanctions, accusing Western nations of wanting to impose regime change in the country. 
Deputy Ambassador Peter Lichev. New sanctions could further complicate uh, the relationship uh, between the host country and peacekeepers and the international community. Generally speaking, introducing um, targeted sanctions against uh, South Sudanese leaders would be the height of irresponsibility now. Someone probably wants very much to see that President Kiir shares the fate of Gaddafi against whom there were also targeted sanctions. Various UN officials have now for months called for the imposition of an arms embargo, including from the Secretary-General, a call that has so far failed to generate consensus in the Council. Adama Dieng is the Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide. The position expressed by, the, uh, by Russia on the uh, issue of the embargo, I mean, I do respect, of course, their sovereign uh, position, but I do also renew my uh, call for an embargo to be imposed on an arm embargo simply because what is happening today in this country is horrific and as I said you have so much arms circulating in that country and everybody at this stage think that the only way to survive would be to have a gun so, uh, and for this reason, I think, uh, although uh, it may ne- necessarily be the, the only uh, recourse to bring uh, the situation to calm, but I think if there is a strong commitment uh, from all parties, all member states, we can definitely, it will make a difference. Riek Mashar fled South Sudan to the DRC in August and was subsequently in neighbouring Sudan and then South Africa for medical treatment. If the three are designated, they would be subject to travel bans and an assets freeze. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. It's 8.13 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The 15th session of the Assembly of States Parties to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court is on in The Hague. This year, it will not be business as usual at the annual general meeting. Earlier in October, Burundi and South Africa gave notice of their intention to withdraw from the Rome Statute. The Gambia followed suit. The Republic of Congo and Namibia have indicated that they too plan to withdraw. Otilia Maunganidze is a senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa, says the continued support of African states who have affirmed their continued support to the court, including Botswana, Sierra Leone, Malawi, Nigeria, Cote d'Ivoire and Senegal, is important. Well, the support of any nation is important for the ICC because it is a court that is established by states and that relies on states in terms of cooperation, in terms of it effectively doing its job. So having the support of not just the African nations, but all the other nations is is, is integral for the ICC to be able to do its job. But perhaps to clarify one thing, you mentioned in your listing earlier that Namibia would possibly withdraw. The official statement that was handed by the Namibian government at the Assembly of States parties was that a decision on withdrawal had not been made, and in fact that if at all there would be any discussion on withdrawal, that would be in the future, but not right now. The words of the Namibian representative was that any conversation on withdrawal 
was ahead, not behind us in terms of Namibia's position. Some countries are on the fence, but those that have lent their support have been very strong in, in terms of why they are remaining with the International Criminal Court. Now, we have also heard talk of an African court to try cases of human rights abuses, genocide, etc. You know, the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Nkosazana maintains that Africa has a mechanism to try its own leaders. You know, she made reference um, some few weeks ago to the trial of former child president Isenha who was sentenced to life for crimes against humanity. This was in May. Now, he was tried in an African court in Senegal. Do you think this is a better route to take? So, to put things a little bit into perspective, the idea of an African court is not a bad one. It is, in fact, a good one because the ultimately the International Criminal Court is meant to serve as a court of last resort. At the moment, the African court does not have criminal jurisdiction, so it wouldn't be able to deal with those cases. But countries ought to continue to deal with these cases themselves until there is an African court with criminal jurisdiction. And that is still in the future. We don't know when that court will begin operations. It requires states parties, African states parties, to ratify the instrument creating it first before we can even talk about it existing. But you mentioned the prosecution of Isena Bre in Senegal. In fact, when it comes to prosecutions, countries like Senegal are the ones who are meant to be having the primary responsibility to deal with these crimes. So it shouldn't be a singular trial. Instead, the conversation we should be having is we should be having about thousands of people prosecuted for serious crimes. But unfortunately, we're still at the stage where we only speak about a few being prosecuted. Now, you know, we see that the powerful, in this case, I'm talking about African leaders, you know, they're opting to leave the court, citing all sorts of reasons. Okay, primarily that of the court's bias against the continent. But we seldom hear about the victims of the human rights abuses taking place around the continent. You know, we rarely hear them mentioned, particularly and not least of all, by these very same leaders. Is this not, in a sense, a betrayal of the victims who need to see justice at work? Indeed, and we should be concerned. We should be concerned that African leaders care more about themselves and their compatriots than they do about the majority of Africans who are the citizens of these countries but who oftentimes become the victims of these crimes. The fact that we we hear and we know more about the name of the president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, than we do about the many millions of people currently living in Darfur in the Kordofans. I think that is something that we also, not just African leaders, but that we also have to take ownership of. And we need to shift the narrative. We need to be talking more about why these people are charged, what they are charged for, and who is affected, rather than talking about them. And, you know, African leaders also are stating their reasons for withdrawal. And like I said, you know, primarily it's the court's bias against the continent. But do you think ignoring Africa's concerns puts the future of international criminal justice as a whole at risk? Particularly for those countries like South Africa, the Gambia and Burundi who have withdrawn on that basis or at least notified that they are withdrawing on that basis. Of course, it puts the the project of international justice in jeopardy because ultimately the International Criminal Court ought to be universally ratified. So where we see countries leaving or their concerns not being 
properly addressed, it means that the prospects of a universal court get slimmer and slimmer. At the same time, it means that those conversations must be constructive, even as they are critical, both on the African side, but also on the side of other members of the Assembly, as well as the International Criminal Court, because ultimately those conversations shouldn't be about egos, but they really should be about what is it that the International Criminal Court is meant to be dealing with, and how, as the community of states, can that court be built constructively and not destroyed. That was Otilia Maunganidze, senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa on the line from The Hague in the Netherlands, speaking to Josejo Dingake. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in the year 2008. Somali pirates release a hijacked Greek-owned tanker MV Genius with all 19 crew members safe and the oil cargo intact after payment of a ransom. That was today in history in the year 2008. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa. In Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The United Nations Climate Conference came to a close on Friday with leaders from more than 190 countries presenting a united front to back the Paris Agreement, which seeks to tackle climate change blamed for prolonged droughts, rising sea levels and diseases. The meeting agreed to complete the rulebook for the implementation of the 2015 Paris Accord by December 2018, while 48 developing countries most at risk of climate change pledged to shift to 100% renewable energy. Poor countries were disappointed that the meeting failed to come up with a clear pronouncement on developed countries' funding for initiatives to help them to adapt to the devastating effects of climate change. Sarah Kimani reports. After two weeks of intense debate and negotiations at the climate talks overshadowed by U.S. President-elect Donald Trump's election victory, world leaders gathered in Morocco emerged to announce that they had agreed to back the Paris deal. Jose Antonio Macondes is the chief climate negotiator for Brazil. To fight climate change is not an issue from one party or one government. It's an overall national position. We are ready to stay the course. We are committed to stay the course. But, and we are also uh, going to be keeping a very watchful eye not to let this process slip. Developing countries, however, felt shortchanged. They say 
Although the final declaration reaffirms developed countries' commitment to mobilize $100 billion a year, a lot of work, a lot of work will need to be put in over the next two years to get funds flowing to help poor countries adapt to climate change. Delegates failed to agree on a work plan on agriculture that would have seen more assistance go to farmers in developing countries to practice smart agriculture, which would, among other things, include having better seed varieties, fertilizers, and access to timely climate information. Edna Molewa is the Environment Minister of South Africa. Well, we, we, are, we are indeed extremely concerned, not just concerned, but extremely concerned <coughs> that the issue of agriculture has been negotiated for a long, long time. This being the seventh year. And almost at the stage where we are thinking, we are thinking that we are nearing decision and concluding this matter after parties had agreed to draft and redraft and come up with what should have been seen as a unifying text. Then partners reject the current text on the table and therefore leading to a deadlock is indeed very, very concerning. At least 70% of Africa's smallholder farmers depend on rain-fed agriculture. Molewa says failure by leaders to make progress will hurt African farmers the most. We continue to see food security, uh, countries being challenged in terms of food security. Our farmers in various countries are beginning to realize very serious challenges from causes of uh, uh, climate change, led to by climate change, droughts, and so forth. And this is something that really concerns us. It is for that reason that we actually appreciated it much when each and every delegation raised this matter in their country statements. We raised it yesterday. We raised it today again in the high-level dialogue that we had. And we do think that it is important that going forward, this matter be really taken up seriously with the COP president because it may be quite late for this period for this COP today, but it is something that we really need to take seriously and move forward with. Agriculture is very, very important for us throughout the world. The Paris Agreement is pushing for a target of limiting global warming to less than 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and closer to 1.5 degrees. Sarah Kemani, Marrakesh, Morocco. It's 8.26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 2005. UN Secretary General Kofi Annan warns that Sudan's volatile Darfur region faces an increasing threat of complete lawlessness and anarchy and says it is crucial that the government and rebels conclude a peace agreement by the end of the year. That was today in history in the year 2005. November is Disability Month in South Africa, but should be a continental event. So let's all make a difference. Channel Africa is calling on all to join us to help needy children everywhere. If parents would love their children, care for them, tender for them, no matter rich or poor, I believe this world would be a better place. Yeah. 
This year's theme is Persons with Disabilities, Equal Participants in Shaping a Sustainable Future. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. At least 120 people died when an overnight passenger train derailed in northern India early on Sunday and the search for more bodies is underway. The accident, the worst in seven years, has put the spotlight back on the antiquated service used daily by 27 million Indians. Rana Sen reports. 200 others were injured, 90 of them seriously when the train veered off its tracks before dawn. 14 coaches crashed into one another, trapping 700 passengers as they slept. M. Babu used his mobile phone torch to save his two daughters. The rest of his family remains missing in carriages crushed like eggshells. It was very scary. Uh, there was total chaos at that particular moment. I was not able to think properly but I made a call and told them to ambulance as soon as possible. And it took uh, exactly half an hour. Police did tremendous job. And everyone, everyone around that particular area was very cooperative. Some villagers came out to rescue and they did their uh, level best to save the life of many people, many, many people. People were profusely bleeding and it cannot be expressed in specific words. It is a terrible experience for me. Ambulances and medical trains transported the injured to hospitals in cities and towns as doctors asked for blood donations and paramedic volunteers. Former Railways Minister Dinesh Trivedi also sent out an appeal as distraught relatives of those on board the crashed Indoor Patna Express rushed to the accident site. I think first of all, uh, obviously my condolence to the families who must be in distress at the moment. We can't imagine what they must be going through. Secondly, this is not the time to apportion blame on anybody. This is the time where we have to see that maximum people who are in the hospital needs to be saved. Somebody may be needing blood or... So that infrastructure should work. Prime Minister Narendra Modi plans to spend more than $2 billion to give a new shine to the colonial era service. The politician also wants to put Japanese bullet trains on Indian tracks. But many like public safety campaigner Padma Subramaniam say the government must first bring creaky trains and rail infrastructure up to standard and upgrade safety features first. If we'd had better wagons in place already, then uh, the impact could have been much less and perhaps many more lives could have been saved in this tragedy. So yes, infrastructure is the need of the hour, much more so than the the glamorous announcements of high-speed trains, new toilets and, you know, all that kind of thing. I think we've been hearing a lot more of such cosmetic uh, changes to the Indian Railways rather than the very, very intrinsic issue of the safety of passengers. Train accidents are common on India's sprawling rail network, which transports 7 billion people a year but lacks modern signaling and communication systems. Most crashes are blamed on poor maintenance, human error or tens of thousands of unmanned rail crossings. For Newsbreak, this is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. In the headlines, Mali's local elections have been marred by boycotts and kidnapping. Polls also cancelled in at least seven districts for security reasons. Security guards have shot and killed a man who was trying to detonate a bomb at a camp in northeastern Nigeria for displaced people. And Ugandan police have arrested an eight-year-old girl on suspicion of being gay. Those are the stories making headlines. the globe every second there's always a breaking story Joy for channel africa radio in ethiopia's capital addis ababa for channel africa i'm lillian strobach reporting from the icc in the hague reporting for channel africa i am hilda kekeloa in zambia our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned giving you the whole picture every time george muhango Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now the international and South African thought leaders will from today gather for the 12th annual ICT summit at the East London International Convention Centre held under the theme A Connected Digital Africa. The three-day event will discuss topical issues, trends and innovative ideas within the ICT industry, as well as feature topic-driven panel discussions and addresses by industry pioneers. Discussions at the summit will include convergence partners connecting Africa through optic fiber and national integrated ICT policy, amongst others. To discuss this further, we have Muze Mfuleni, CEO of the ICT Summit. Muze, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Thank you for hosting us on this beautiful day in Africa. Now, Muse, this is the 12th annual ICT Summit. What can we expect this time around? Uh, well, we're very excited on the 12th one because we put in all efforts in what we can do better as Africans in digitizing our beautiful continent. So you would expect a lot of current discussions on uh, bridging the digital divide between your rural urban and uh, economically strong parts of Africa. So we've got academics coming to speak, we've got uh, entrepreneurs coming to speak, we've got industry specialists who come from various fields in the industry. So we are very excited about the 12th ICT Summit uh, this year. 
You've just mentioned a few um, topical issues that will be tabled at the three-day gathering. Can you just go into detail, considering the fact that some parts on the African continent do not even have access to um, Wi-Fi and uh, things like that? Just give us a bit of an idea of um, what will be tabled and how um, maybe these uh, uh, challenges will be tackled going forward. One of the important sessions we're going to have is what is called connecting Africa through optic fiber, satellite, and wireless. You'd notice that the um, topographies or road infrastructure in Africa is still a bit of a big challenge. So in some areas, you'll notice that it's not going to be easy to put in your modern infrastructure. So wireless becomes your better option compared to your optic fiber. Uh, including your satellite. But the question is always the big issue, which is the cost. How affordable it is for certain parts of Africa, how sustainable it is, how safe it is to put these type of investments uh, by the telcos or other role players uh, in the industry. Because if you think that you want to solve the issue of connecting Africa with one silver bullet, you are making a big mistake because Africa is a vast continent with, dif- with different geographies. So we will look into that issue. The other issue we look at is that Africa is surrounded by water, right? On the, on the, uh, from South African side, we refer to them as the Indian and the Atlantic Ocean. Now, in, in the waters that uh, surround uh, Africa, you find that there are undersea water cables who offer an opportunity for Africans for broadband connectivity then how do you take the African parts in the, in the south, um, the west, and the inland parts of Africa to latch on in terms of these undersea water cables? So we've got companies that are already doing this work, like FICOM, that will be having this type of uh, uh, debate. The other issue we, we are saying is that you know, Africa has a big young population, young entrepreneurs, and we're seeing a lot of great work coming out of Kenya by these young innovators. How do we take our own innovators in Africa and put them in sort of your so-called Silicon Valley platforms? Because you want Africans to provide ICT solutions for their situations. We know Africa better. We can, desi- we can design technologies, applications that can respond to the societies where we live in as Africans. So, the issue of young and women is going to become a big discussion in the summit as well, and we're looking forward to some of those panelists who will be dealing with those issues. Now, looking forward to panelists who will be dealing with those issues, who are some of the speakers expected at the event? Can you just mention a few? Yes, with greatest pleasure. We've got Andele Naba, the uh, chairman for Convergent Solutions. We have Vianis Nakhana, the chief business officer uh, of Africa. We have uh, great speakers who are coming from SICOM, uh, under seawater cable, will be doing presentations. We have uh, speakers coming from the federal government of the Eastern Cape, we call them here, provincial government, will be giving us a perspective of um, the support and policies that government can put in place. And also we've got the uh, speakers coming from the Department of Communication, who would be representing our central government here in South Africa. So these are great speakers, including academics and including people who come from rural parts of Africa who will be sharing 
their experiences and making sure that we have digital villages in Africa. So that's almost a snapshot of the speakers. We've got a total of um, 36 speakers each day. So it's a long list, but I let me just mention these key ones for our listeners. Mutze, is this possibly another talk shop or will there be action and implementable action after the summit? That's a very good question because, you know, it's quite expensive for people to come to these discussions. They take a very valuable uh, work time, professional time. So it just can't be a talk shop. But talk always starts a process of change. So part of it, yes, is going to be talk because we'll be talking about things that are not already happening in Africa but are happening in other parts of the world. We need to hear the talk about those issues, how other parts of the world are doing them better, so that when we do the doing part as Africans, we are better advised in terms of the global trends around issues of technology. But what we have done as a summit is put a mechanism where when we meet every year, we measure what we've discussed in the previous year and check progress. For an example, last uh, two years, we've been focusing on what's called e-learning, making sure that the African child is able to access information from either a device such as a phone, a laptop, or a computer as the best-case scenario. And how can government be able to support education of an African child in that regard? So this year, we do an evaluation how far we've gone with that discussion. The second part is the issue of health in Africa. You know, our people travel long distances to access medical care, and we had a big debate last year on how we can help people, in particular in rural communities, to have access to um, affordable health care and using technology. This year, the session will only be looking at how far have we gone. So, yes, you're correct. We must be able to guard these sessions that they don't become just about talk. You are able to evaluate and monitor progress. And we're going to be doing that exactly focusing on those two key areas for us as Africans. E-health and e-learning, evaluating what we discussed last year. And so the, the thing continues, Cindy, that the same thing next year, we go through the same discussion where we then evaluate. We talked about um, digitizing Africa. How far have those discussions? So 2017 conference will look in terms of that issue. And it protects this thing of us Africans sometimes talking too much and doing less. Mutze, thank you so much for joining us. We have to leave it there for now. Thank you very much for having us. And thank you for continuing to talk to us as Africans. We really appreciate you for that. Thank you, Mutze. That was Mutze Mfuleni, Chief Executive Officer of the ICT Summit, which gets underway today in the South African town of East London. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kultanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Now, investing in training is critical to expand the tech sector in Africa, according to Rwanda's Minister of Youth and ICT, Information and Communications Technologies. Jean Philbert Nzengimana said his government has supported tech entrepreneurs and small and medium-sized enterprises by providing a hub where their ideas can be turned into businesses. Nzengimana has been in Bangkok for an annual gathering organized by the International Telecommunications 
Union, the UN agency that deals with ICT-related issues. Maximilian Jacobson Gonzalez asked him what factors are needed to grow Africa's digital economy. I think leadership comes uh, on top of everything because uh, leadership defines the vision, mobilizes the people, mobilizes the resources, and drives execution. But uh, I think the, the next most important is talent. So the leadership needs to put in place a plan for training, and especially the young people of Africa, if we're talking about the digital economy in Africa, but this is valid for everywhere in the world. And uh, thirdly, I believe that funding is important because traditional funding hasn't been working for the kind of innovation that the digital economy needs to grow. Other parts of the world have found different formulas, but in Africa we are also finding our own ways to fund our tech talents. Rwanda has a very active tech, SME and entrepreneur culture. What factors do you think have contributed to making it successful and, and how has the government supported uh, SMEs? We started out with K-Lab, which is a knowledge lab. It's a hub, it's a place where you can just come with an idea or a dream, but then you are helped out throughout the process to materialize that idea and turn it into a business that creates wealth and jobs. And from the K-Lab that is four years old, we've seen a movement of tech innovation hubs and labs, uh, some of them by universities, others by private sector. So it's an ecosystem that is uh, being put in place. And the royal government has really been to facilitate that kind of ecosystem to grow and grow faster than it would have grown without the intervention of government. Now, Rwanda is a member of the Smart Africa Alliance. I wonder perhaps if you could just tell us a little bit about that and, and why, why you feel it's important to be a member of that. Smart Africa Alliance was born in Rwanda in uh, uh, October 2013. Uh, during the Transform Africa Conference, uh, President Kagame with his uh, colleagues, uh, other six heads of state, that was Rwanda's Minister of Youth and Information and Communications Technologies, Jean Philbert Nzengimana, speaking to Maximilian Jacobson Gonzalez. And I'm Tabi Solohoko with an economics update. Nigeria's overnight interbank lending rate fell to 14% on Friday from 22% mid last week after the central bank repaid matured treasury bills, injecting cash into the banking system. Traders say the bank injected around 444.98 million US dollars through its payout of matured open market operations bills which helps lower borrowing costs among banks. The cash helped money market liquidity despite bond and treasury bill sales this week. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa says the country has given credit ratings agencies positive news in recent meetings as it fights to stave off a downgrade to junk status. He says South Africa has made progress on labor instability issues. Ratings agencies are to release or reassess South Africa's investment status next month. Ramaphosa explains. Yes, I have met uh, the the rating agencies, Fitch. They wanted to know on the issue of strike, strike balloting, uh, whether the part of the agreement will deal with that. 
We said yes, it will. They wanted to hear about the minimum wage. We said yes, we're going to almost reach finality on that. Uh, They were like a sponge, just sucking in information. And we gave them all the information that they needed to get. I also briefed them on the the state-owned enterprise reform process, and they seemed satisfied. The world's leading producer of cashew nuts, Accord d'Ivoire, has added bonus payments to existing tax breaks to drive a rapid expansion in local processing of the crop. Already, the world's top cocoa grower more than doubled its cashew output from 350,000 tons in 2009. Earlier this month, Ivorian President Alassane Ouattara signed a new constitution into law. Gold fields and silver standard resources have withdrawn as they offer to buy Kirkland Lake Gold after the Canadian miner asked its shareholders to vote in favour of its takeover bid for Australia's new market gold incorporation. Kirkland confirmed that South Africa's gold fields and Canada's silver standard had made three joint bids for the company and recently sweetened their offer to about 1.04 billion US dollars. Goldfields said on Friday that it would pursue negotiations with Kirkland if the miners' shareholders rejected the new market transaction. Yields on Egypt's three- and nine-month treasury bills have fallen at an auction on Sunday. Yields on the 91-day bill dropped to an average 17.744% from 18.028% the last time similar bills were sold. Yields on the 266-day bill declined to an average 17.610% from 18.715% at the last similar auction. Bank of America recommended in a recent report that the investors buy six-month Egyptian T-bills without hedging them. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.39 in South Africa, 10.83 in Botswana, 9.86 in Zambia, 8.0 British pound, 9.4 euro. Gold one thousand two zero eight dollars, platinum nine two six dollars per ounce. Brand crude four six dollars zero five cents a barrel. For Channel Africa's economic update, my name is Toby Solohoku, and up next is Figilanwati with a sport update.
A sports update up next with Figi Lilingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with football news. Nigeria saw off Spain 2-1 at the Papua New Guinea PNG football stadium in Port Moresby to finish their FIFA Under-20 Women's World Cup 2016 campaign with a victory. The Nigerians came from behind to score through Ihoma Oenyebuchi and Chinwendu Ihezu after Alba Ridondo had given the European side the lead. Pedro Lopez's side progressed to the knockout stages but in second place after Japan's dismantling of Canada. The African side played the final six minutes with 10 players after Glory Ogbona picked up a second booking, but it mattered little as Peter de Devbo's side held on for three points. That second win on the bounce for Nigerians was not enough to progress or indeed stop Spain going through, but was enough to stop the Spaniards topping Group B with Japan winning the pool. And in rugby news... Springbok coach Alistair Coutier has conceded that his team's 2018 loss to Italy in Florence at the weekend is the darkest and the toughest moment of his coaching career. The loss is the Springbok's first to Italy, which follows hot on the heels of Springbok's first loss against England in a decade last week. Coutier's reign as coach has been riddled with low points, including a record loss to the All Blacks in Durban and a first-ever loss against Ireland on home soil and against Argentina in South America. That is out of my hands, but uh, definitely not Springbok standard. Definitely, I say, probably the darkest moment of my coaching career. Toughest. Um, but I don't want to, you know, look at it emotionally now because emotions are high. It's, um, it's difficult. It's really difficult, difficult position um, to be in. Not easy. But I, I suppose I can only congratulate Italy on a on a standing performance from a very young team. Gutierrez also says he hasn't lost the change room and believe among the players in his abilities. However, Gutierrez says the players capitulated when under pressure and stayed away from their game plan. The question is posed differently from the first one. I, uh, I still think so. And, and to be honest, and you cannot speak to the captain yet. I don't think I've lost the change room. Definitely not. We have had a good plan, like every week. Players bought into the plan. And somehow when the pressure's on, when Italy, the margins stayed close, and the Italians got believed back, and they had a sniff and thought that they were in this, and they were actually doing well, we went and went outside the plan again. And we made mistakes again. And... Uh, like got stuck into that that with athletics kenya's olympic marathon champion ilwid kipchoge won the 2016 Ertel daily half marathon leading compatriot augustine choge also to a podium finish in new delhi in india kipchoge clocked 59 minutes and 44 seconds to reclaim the title kenya won last in 2012 that's your sport news this hour Africa, rise and shine.
Afrika Zola Afrika amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa U.S. seeks sanctions against South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar. Experts call for sustainable financing of African Union peace operation and the U.N. Climate Change Summit ends with a plea for urgent action. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutzora Magadza and Tutungubeni, technical producer Maria Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Zama Jobe with a song titled Agana.
Namibia International Beach and Cultural Festival. Langstrand Beach, Walfus Bay, Namibia. 23rd, 24th, 25th of December. Music Festival with international and local artists. Four-night accommodation packages and activities available at Compute Ticket Travel. Main event tickets available at Compute Ticket. 150 Namibian dollars, 150 rands, and 130 pula. Tickets are available at ShopRite and Checkers. Get yours today. VIP is 500 Namibian dollars, 500 rands, or 380 pula. Hashtag Xmas in Namibia. Hashtag Harambe. Cultures of Southern Africa route is powered by Channel Africa. www.culturalfestival.net. Download the app today.